is Nicole Whitney, News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained. News for the Soul is now in its 25th year of broadcasting. Tune in live or visit the archives at newsforthesoul.com. That's newsforthesoul.com. Next on News for the Soul, Light Body Healing with Dr. Lara. Dr. Lara is a functional medicine health coach, an advanced practice clinical pharmacist specialist, master intuitive healer and channel, and international teacher and speaker on a mission to empower you to take an active role in your healing journey to achieve holistic health mastery of the mind, body and spirit. Dr. Lara combines energy medicine with functional medicine to facilitate healing at the root level. Call in now to speak with Dr. Lara today. 646-595-4274. 646-595-4274. Please welcome Dr. Lara back to News for the Soul. Hello and welcome everyone. Welcome back. Welcome back. I'm excited to have you all here and I'm excited to have our guest today. His name is Lincoln Stoller, PhD, and he is a therapist, coach, and scientist on a mission to help people really dive into their subconscious, creating awareness and independence with a variety of tools that I'm excited to have him tell you about. Welcome, Lincoln. Hi. How's the audio? It sounds great. Okay. How are good. you doing today? Yeah. Um, good. It's odd to be on a, a live call-in show. All the others have been taped. <laughs> Not that it makes yes. a difference, but it's interesting. Yeah, it brings a different energy to it for sure. Yeah. So let's. Let's just dive right in, and I would love to have you tell the audience about your story and how you got to be doing this amazing work that you're doing today. Well, it's kind of a long story, but um, every time I tell it, I, I uh, you know, create a different mythology. I guess I was more interested in understanding things, you know, some healing oriented people say they're interested in helping people. I guess I was always more interested in understanding people. I find it rewarding to uh, make a connection. You know, you could sort of get Freudian about making connections with the importance of making connections. So I started, uh, you know, I have to say that when I was very young, I felt I lacked connection with my mostly mother. And I think that set a tone probably throughout my life, for wanting to understand and make connection with people. I started doing mountaineering as a, you know, 13-year-old. And it was odd because on the East Coast in New York, where there aren't any mountains, no one understood what I was doing. It didn't really establish much of a connection, except with the people I went out into the wilderness with. And they were kind of somewhat extreme people, as you'd imagine. And then I went on and got a PhD in physics, and those people are rather extreme as well. In fact, <laughs> I seem to be bouncing around with a lot of extreme people. Um, you know, I got a uh, a pilot's license. Pilots are rather extreme. And, you know, I've never been very social or I've never been very tolerant of 
um, what you call casual social time. So I eventually got into, God, where did it start? Well, in a funny way, involved with uh, foreign cultures because I was traveling through this mountaineering project. And uh, then uh, foreign religions and foreign ceremonies and the notion of understanding things from other perspectives. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can see sort of where this is going, you know, personal extremes and intellectual extremes, physical extremes. And it sort of made sense to me or some kind of sense. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm never sure who I'm talking to, you know, the whole, the the listeners, but I, I sort Mm. of get the impression that I'm talking to people who are interested in, Self-awareness and self-healing, and the intro that I just heard emphasized that. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. So I was intrigued when you contacted me and um, you were talking about integrating psychedelics into your therapy approach. And so can we just start with maybe uh, outlining for the listeners the difference between coaching and therapy? Because I'm a coach and you're a therapist. So help the uh, audience understand sort of the differences mm-hmm. between the two. Well, I'm also a cynic in the better sense of the word. Okay. In that I, I follow the money, or at least I watch the money. Um, mm-hmm. And in the uh, training I had as a therapist, which included a little training for coaching, there was a somewhat indistinct emphasis on keeping the two apart. And it was sort of a fabricated emphasis in terms of what kind of questions a therapist would ask or what a coach should ask and what kind of goals the two should set. And it seemed rather more pragmatic than health-oriented. Well, pragmatic from the uh, economic point of view. They were establishing two different markets, satisfying two different markets. You have to sort of go back and understand the origin of therapy, which was mm, military, basically. The U.S. military brought the uh, European psychotherapists over for the enduring and never-ending problem of of solving uh, battle fatigue, shell shock, and Mm. what's today called PTSD. Mm. And that seems to be where it's got its foothold in North America. And then it sort of infringed on doctors' rights and uh, prescription rights and established itself as psychiatry and then an academic aspect of psychology. And then along came the broader desire and need of the public for help. So social work is, was invented. And there was a lot of resistance to empowering people with, without, a, without a Ph.D., to offer psychological help, but around in the 70s that sort of broke through that ceiling and created what turned out to be social work and clinical counseling degrees. These are just master's degrees. And then in the United States, there was a certification body that operated in every state and so forth. But that didn't seem to satisfy everyone. And there was still untapped potential that... uh, developed into coaching. This is how I see it. Mm -hmm. And so what's today emphasized is that therapists deal with 
the past and resolving issues that block a person's balance or health, and they they stray into the area of mental health, but they don't go too far. They don't go to schizophrenia, and they don't go to manic depressive. They sort of stay on the lighter side of the diagnostic and statistical manual of psychiatric diseases into areas like uh, chronic anxiety and, um, I don't know, some other sort of mental health, lighter mental health issues, whatever that means. And then Mm -hmm. coaches were uh, sort of an area was sort of cut out for coaching, which was to focus just on moving forward and accomplishing goals, mostly aimed at serving healthy people. And uh, some coaches uh, proclaim their complete disdain for illness and their lack of training in psychology, psychotherapy, or counseling. And they make that their, you know, their calling card. You know, we're focused mm-hmm. only on helping you achieve your goals and we're not interested in your past uh, traumas. Mm. So that seems to be sort of the the commercial answer to your question, that coaches are focused on looking forward and, and um, bringing your powers to bear, whereas therapists are helping you look backward and resolve your old issues and um, letting your self develop or, or uh, what would you say, um, go through the developmental stages that were somehow impeded mm. in your past. And I think yes. it's, you know, basically kind of false in a, in a human sense. Makes a nice uh, marketing story, but I, I can't see. I, I mean, when I deal as a therapist, I'm always thinking as a coach, you know, I, I don't really care what a person says their problem is. I want to know what their goal is. Mm-hmm. I want to join them in accomplishing what they want. I don't want to feel that I'm just sort of the mental surgeon that's extracted some sort of, you know, abstract problem from the past and, and uh, put them on, you know, it, it's not, it's not allopathic medicine in either case. Right. Anyway, I'll and leave I think, it there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's good that, that in general, a lot of different, areas now are evolving into that more full circle holistic view and approach so it's not just about the past and it's not just about the future because none of those things exist in a vacuum but you know in order for us to be happy whole and functional we do need to reconcile what we went through in the past whether they're you know big t or little t traumas and then we need tools to move forward and be productive and reach our goals and all of those good things. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I love that you're, you know, combining the two and sort of breaking that old school mold, so to speak. I don't think it's so, too old, though. I, I don't know where it's going to go oh, in the future. Maybe you know. I don't. Oh, well, I mean, I think it's interesting. You know, I think – in general, the, especially, too, with demand, like you talked about, follow the money, there is an, an economic element in terms of where is their demand. And I think right now there's a huge demand from all of us that want to feel good and function better 
we're demanding more of our practitioners. And those, you know, some of us will evolve, like you and I, into the more, like I said, full circle, holistic approach. And then others will stay in that. And I call it an old paradigm. I agree with you. It's not that mm-hmm. old. But mm-hmm. it, it's not where we're going, I don't think. And I'm, and I I'm happy and grateful for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it has to so be in traditional medicine. Yes, yes. So um, now let's shift a little bit and talk about, you know, some um, the way that psychedelics are used or starting to be used in these more traditional approaches. And I think some of us are aware that, you know, there were um, different plant medicines that have been used in native and shamanic traditions for many, many, many years, thousands of years. And they've always sort of, I guess, stayed in that realm. But now there's this new, um, new evolution of bringing psychedelics into more of what we would consider traditional approaches, even though, like we just talked about, they're evolving into being less traditional. But um, can you talk a little bit about that? It's interesting. Um, Two angles. Well, there are more, but for two angles, you know, psychedelics emerged in Western culture in the 60s as sort of an extension of pop culture and the youth movement, and they were suppressed and made illegal for, you know, basically political reasons. They certainly weren't talking mm-hmm. about health. You know, they were said that they were dangerous, but uh, they weren't really backing right. that up with um, anything. Um, but they looked dangerous, and they looked foreign, and they looked strange and, and um, seditious, and they were being touted by – they were being touted and sold, you know, you could say irresponsibly, without any, as recreationally. So it's mm-hmm. not too surprising that they were marginalized and rejected. Um, no, to be ultra cynical, you could say nobody, nobody in power had any money to make on them. That would be the ultra cynical way to say it. And it's kind of true. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it turned into a high, uh, high income source of prison income. But anyway, the two groups that now seem to have emerged, there's, there's always been an underground and there's always been a recreational use of drugs, um, not even, you know, hardly distinguishing between psychedelics and non-psychedelics, uh, euphorics and sedatives and hallucinogens have all just been called drugs, you know, all, all illegal. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's all of a sudden, in, in what's almost sort of a giddy uh, I would say almost too fast uh, evolution, the recognition that these chemicals, basically they're thought of as chemicals, have uh, a healthcare role to play. And so you've got academics who are studying them in the sort of traditional semi-scientific way. I mean, they're trying to be scientific, um, experimental psychology. And then you've got investors who are wondering always about the profit to be made. And you've got therapists who are, um, you know, they don't have the legal right alone to give illegal things. But when in conjunction, when working in conjunction with academics, 
there is the route to have research authorization to use these chemicals so that most of them, you know, LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, which are still illegal um, except in limited research capacity, have to be used in a kind of umbrella, a narrow umbrella guarded supervised context and that only one ketamine which is an anesthetic and turns out to be a hallucinogen at, or a psychedelic and hallucinogen at a certain dose is, is legal so that a number of psychologists are using ketamine to uh, advance this thing called psychedelic assisted therapy that I'm afraid that just I've made it more complicated. So to simplify it, <laughs> uh, there are substances that people are looking at that seem to do something dramatically different from any of the other talk therapies or chemical therapies. And people are just starting, although they'd like to tell you they're certified and educated and so forth. They're just starting to invent the certification the education and the use of these things for, in particular, I would say depression and addiction and PTSD, which is trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it would be interesting. We might talk about where is it going to go and how is it going to be presented to the public and, you know, area. Yeah. Yeah. So actually my next question for you was going to be in terms of uh, what like the goal of using these agents. <clears throat> so like what, I guess what's the happy end result or what's the outcome that we're looking for when we're considering using a psychedelic versus a more traditional approach? Like is, the outcome still available without the psychedelic or is this a new approach that is unfolding better outcomes? What do you Well, think? another, another not very simple question. <laughs> uh, I'm full of them today. <laughs> well, you know, the simplest answer is, will they make somebody money? I, I'm, a, I'm sorry to be crass and cynical, but that's the driver investment in research, uh, therapy, use, is being driven by a burgeoning commercial interest. Mm. I mean, of course, that that comes back to are they successful in doing something? Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, if they are, they always were, and that was never enough before. So if they can be commercialized, oh, you you know, history is full of stories where good ideas were, that were not commercialized, were not adopted. So mm-hmm. you, you have to understand it. And, I mean, we all know if you can't make a living at something, then all you can be is a, a you know, a mouthpiece or a uh, some kind of seer of the future. And that doesn't really float the idea broadly. So the, the idea has to work, and it has to be commercializable. So <clears throat> one of the answers, and I think people are kind of, sort of pussyfooting around this question. If they work too well, they're not going to be commercializable. 
And mm-hmm. you're not going to have a lot of people wanting to offer them if a single dose of psilocybin dries up your whole, you know, patient roster. Um, uh, so the ultimate goal is different. For the investors, they want a return on investment. And it's not going to be cheap because it takes a lot of time to administer and monitor and resolve psychedelics, which I'll mention in a moment. Mm-hmm. And the result for the clients, of course, is remission from their distress. And uh, there's also a result for therapists, which is that it can be taught and controlled and fit into what is basically a hierarchy of professional, academic, and even pharmaceutical arrangements. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these traditional psychedelics, which were ceremonial and indigenous, are not entirely appropriate for pharmaceutical production or government certification and testing because they just involve going out in the field and collecting handfuls of weeds. And those mm-hmm. uh, to make those you know, certified and measured and titrated, they really have to be synthesized and analyzed. So some things have been synthesized and analyzed. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it is worth mentioning. It, it's not being talked about. But just because you can synthesize a chemical and extract what you call its active ingredient and administer it doesn't mean that it's actually the same thing that you get in uh, an herbal infusion. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think they found that, that out with cannabis. Yeah, and uh, I, I found it out with uh, ayahuasca, some of the more complicated mm-hmm. ones, and mushrooms too, of which there are, you know, people can extract the active ingredient psilocybin, but there are thousands of mushrooms and there are mm-hmm. tens of psychedelic ones. Um, and they have different effects. So if you can extract the chemical and produce it in a lab and put it in the capsule, <clears throat> sell it in a dosage, it doesn't mean you're actually using traditional psilocybin or traditional psychedelics. It may be and probably will be the road that therapeutic use follows <clears throat> because you can control it and you can certify mm-hmm. it and attest to its purity. But it it takes it further and further away from the traditional use of these things, which was um, deeply personal and uh, often religious and certainly, well, community-oriented, family-oriented. And it turns it, you know, this is what bugs me and maybe bugs you, into an allopathic medical approach to mental health, which never was a very good fit. So here's where we're going. Um, Do you want to take a more traditional approach in the sense of indigenous or natural, in which case you're not going to get it from your local psychotherapist or counselor? Or do you want the clinical certified Western prescriptive approach. And I think those two will probably develop differently because Mm -hmm. the richer person will be able to go to a foreign country and take a 10-day retreat 
using a traditional approach, but you won't get insurance and you won't get uh, it won't fit in healthcare, the Western healthcare system. And if you do go to a counselor who says, "Oh, you're depressed. You should see a psychologist," they'll put you on a more allopathic road. And that road, I, I think, to answer your question, is a faster resolution of your problems, and you know, with a sort of black box. Nobody's actually saying what these things do. I mean, we could talk about what they do or how they do it, or how you're going to be involved, but, you know, follow our instructions and relief will be yours. That's the promise. Right. And, but, okay. And I think maybe we're opening the Pandora's box about just the lack of moral compass within, um, you know, a lot of Western medicine in the pharmaceutical world for sure. But, you know, isn't part of the process, the healing process, I mean, the benefit is going through that process and doing the self-exploration. And so this is where I would love to hear more about your, you know, your work using the different, you know, trance states and yeah. And really explaining to our listeners how that is really the, the, an optimized approach. Well, I don't know if it is optimized, depending. Okay, Um, okay. Let me just think for a moment. I want to step back and say what we're told scientifically, medicinally, uh, pharmaceutically, psychedelics are doing is they are opening new neural connections in your brain, which basically means new thoughts, new associations, more flexibility, even uh, engagement with new engagement with old memories, uh, neuroplastic or neuroplasticity. So these are all sort of, you know, mechanical terms. And under that rubric, the idea is that the chemical alone is healing. You know, it, it, it's like an anticoagulant for your mind. And, uh, you know, just like you might take Dilaudid to thin your blood, now you can take psilocybin to improve the circulation of your mind or, uh, you know, any of the others. And they all turn out to be slightly different, not all, but they're they're definitely different classes which do different things to your mind and emotion and body. So there is some, you know, as much as I disdain the medical and chemical approach, there's certainly something to it. You know, some of these are serotonin agonists and others do other things. And those things alone can be helpful to people without any therapy, trance, or introspection at all. I mean, it's true, I suppose. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we've got generations of people taking these things without any help at all in often distracting or even negative circumstances. And they still have life-changing, sometimes positive, but not always experiences. Mm-hmm. So then to get to the, I think, you know, the meat of the issue is like what's – so just loosening your mind doesn't flush um, new ideas through it. And, you know, the the other question that no one's really asking is do you even, do you even need these? 
because everyone's sort of jumping on them as, you know, the new train to health. And if you go back and look in history, uh, first of all, a lot of these psychedelic ceremonies are accompanied by trance, religious, meditative, cleansing, introspective um, protocols. And in some cases, the drug is not that important. So, for example, if you're going to learn to be a shaman to use ayahuasca, which is a psychedelic, you're expected to do long cleansing ceremonies, you know, of weeks at a time on special diets, um, using plants that address more subtle areas of your mind, plants that allow you to communicate with the plant teachers, which for most people do nothing. Uh, And this is supposed Mm -hmm. to be necessary to attune yourself to the more, you know, stronger, dramatic effect of the psychedelic. That's not even on the Western therapeutic menu. Um, Right. So my approach is, uh, you know, not not very popular in the integrated sense. But I go back to the traditional use of these things and to the traditional use of trance for healing, and I find it in hypnosis. I find it in certain areas of Jungian therapy, mostly the guided visualizations, which are basically hypnotic. And um, I find it in meditation, you know, like Vipassana meditation and um sensory deprivation and dream work. These are all trance-based things. And when I get together with a client, I mean, it's almost too bad. I don't have enough time to to touch on all these things with with my client. So I have to sort of pick, you know, do you dream? Uh, do you meditate? Uh, do you do, um, you know, what sort of athletic things do you do? Because athletics or, I don't know, athletic is turned into a synonym for sports. I don't mean it that way. Um, do you engage with your body deeply, put it that way? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of these things are ways to understand yourself that in the idea of unlocking your mind, which is what the psychedelics might be doing, you know, what are you finding when you unlock your mind? Are you an open person underneath, engaged with your body and uh, tolerant of your subconscious? Because if you are, then there's a many more sources of information than if you aren't. So just unlocking the front door doesn't necessarily mean you can navigate the maze that you get into. And mm-hmm. I think trance is a way of navigating the maze that you get into. So in particular, what I've been writing about recently, um, again, I have to back up a little, the therapeutic use of psychedelics these days that I know that's being talked about and advanced and considered the, the gold standard for what it's worth is that you, you get some qualified people, which is to say medically and psychologically qualified people, to sit down with a client, make them comfortable, give them a psychedelic, and simply wait until it's over. And then you, you know, nurse them back to reality, make sure they can walk straight. And in a day or so, you start talking to them about the experience 
and see if their now loosened mind will be more amenable to standard therapy, which seems kind of ridiculous. You know, it, it's oh, sort of like the Roto-Rooter yeah. approach. Yeah. And that's, that's what's <laughs> being taught. Oh, I guess my expectations were a little higher than that. <laughs> no, I don't. I've never heard. I'm the only one I know of who's talking about doing therapy in the psychedelic state. Everyone else's hands right. off. Yeah, to give it context and be like a guide and help yeah. the actual processing while your mind is open, not after. I don't yeah, know. No. Okay. Well, I mean, okay. It, well, I'm glad you said we that because I think a lot of us just went, oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you've ever taken a psychedelic or even if you've ever taken any mind-altering drug, which is to say if you've ever drank two beers and a glass of wine, you know that some things make you talk with other people and other things make you you know, isolated and reserved and move into your own space. Yeah. So that having somebody join you might not always be what you want, and it might true, take true. a certain amount of skill. And I think people, if you don't learn that skill, you won't generally have that skill. So as you can imagine yeah. going into a very contemplative space, do you want somebody talking to you? I don't know. I mean, can it be done I, well? I, yeah, I, I guess think it, it can. I, I think, think it so. can be done well, yeah. Yeah. And and again, um, I think that's why this Yeah, so, I think that's why like the whole power of ceremony is so powerful in the context yeah. of because it sort of it prepaves the way. It yeah. allows the per, the person that's about to have the experience, maybe it helps put them at ease, maybe it, you know, maybe set some expectations up or, you know, all of these different things so that when maybe if there is talking through it, then they're not jarred or triggered or, you know, all of these other, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah, well, that's me, very, very interesting. Let me jump in there and say that I would say there are three levels. There is always, no, there's not always, there's often a conscious element to a psychedelic experience. You're not totally gone, mm -hmm. often. It, it, it kind of vacillates. Sometimes you go deeper and sometimes you go lighter. This happens in hypnosis. It happens in meditation. It happens in mm -hmm. everyday life. So there will be times when you will be less accessible to conversation and other times more. There will probably be times when you're almost lucid and feeling normal briefly, um, you know, except for the bats flying around or whatever. Because hallucination is different from, you know, psychedelics. Hallucination mm -hmm. is hearing and seeing things. Um, so there's going to be in most psychedelics alternations of periods of lucidity. And there's also different levels of sensitivity to sound and ideas and emotion. So the person who's talking to you would need to be, um, uh, you know, on your frequency or coherent with you. And most likely, I think the person who would be trying to help you would, would not be um, under the influence of a psychedelic. But that would only work if they could understand where you were without the psychedelic trouble of taking right. a psychedelic and trying to be a therapist is that, you know, the winds in, in your 
mind may blow you in some other direction, obviously, into your own past. And if you're trying to be helpful, you want to keep with the person who's making the voyage. But then again, you do have to leave the shore. So unless you can essentially enter the psychedelic space yourself without any um, you know, winds blowing you, you won't, mm-hmm. may not be able to accompany a client. So, I mean, nobody knows this stuff. If you go back and look at how shamans work, they generally do take the substance, but they don't try to hold your hand. Um, in fact, they work with the energies, not with the uh, talk therapy. In fact, they often don't even speak your language. And if they do communicate, it's usually through song and rhythm, um, sometimes through touch, but rarely. Um, very light touch, like brushing of a feather and blowing of air. So you've got, mm-hmm. you know, those are two levels. Are, can you speak... Uh, can you be sensitive to another speaker? Do you want to even listen to someone? Which, you know, if you're traveling through strange realms, in my experience, I wouldn't want to listen to somebody who wasn't in that realm. I would find it distracting. Mm -hmm. But then I've never talked to anybody who was in that realm with me, even if it's possible. Mm -hmm. And then the third point to make is that there are some states and some drugs which are so dissociative that you're not in the world. You're, um, you're in a dream, uh, totally separated, or at least I think totally separated in my experience, so that a person who's trying to do any therapy would be on the outside. But then again, you come up, you go down. I think it's possible to be a more helpful presence than simply handing you toilet paper when you need to blow your nose. (laughs) But nobody's, you know, the shaman don't hand you the toilet paper. Um, Mm -hmm. Normally in shamanic experiences, there's the shaman who are kind of in another world, always, never quite sure what world they're in. And then they're usually assistants who do hand people the toilet paper and the water bottles and help them to the bathroom and back Mm -hmm. uh, who don't take the drug so that they can do those functions. And there are no psychotherapists doing talk therapy or talking about, you know, Piaget's childhood model. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, I get back to coaching and say maybe make use of this idea that we're going to direct ourselves toward positive, salutary, um, goal-oriented accomplishments versus old burdens and traumas um, to start to orient how we could help you in this experience or how you would be why would you would like to be helped, how you admit admit help. And it would seem that the coaching approach would be, it would take some of the weight off this whole thing. You know, now mm-hmm. we don't have to worry about becoming over-traumatized or, and confusion is not, is not a big problem because hopefully if you're just looking to accomplish something, you have some clarity. 
Uh, again, this is just an idea. No, you know, nobody's nobody's talked about this. It's well known that no one's really. Yeah. Well, maybe they're talking about it, but I don't hear them. So. Well, yeah, I haven't heard a lot of specific details either, which is why I'm so happy that you're here today and bringing more light to this topic because they, I feel like there's a lot of abstract talk about, oh, you know, the potential of these substances, but the actual reality of implementation, I don't think yeah. is, it, like you said, if it's happening, it's not being talked about. And so um, what would that look like? And so from here, I just want to say that I do think that we have such powerful tools available to us already in hypnosis, in other trance states, in dream work, in meditation. I know I can speak personally from multiple very powerful healing experiences through various different types of trance. Um, And so I think that should not be discounted, and especially – as someone myself who was trained in clinical pharmacy, the last thing I want to do is put another crutch out there. <laughs> you know, I am a big proponent of personal empowerment and teaching people to use the tools that are readily available. And while I, I'm sure these substances will have a therapeutic value, I also don't think that they are absolutely necessary in order to get, again, like I called it before, the happy end result, the desired outcome for me, our, you know. Yeah, go ahead. Let me give you, I have one case I like. I want to describe it. I have a guy who I've worked with, and he's been a friend for 10 years, and we've done um, psychedelics, ayahuasca, and we've done coaching, and we've done hypnosis. And he's an artist and a musician. The result of the psychedelic, um, I didn't hear. I mean, you know, it's always sort of a mind-bending experience. But I didn't hear him tell me that it changed his life um, dramatically, suddenly, or uh, irrevocably. Uh, The coaching we did is subtle, as coaching always is. You know, you have to sort of go where the person wants to go. It's rather intellectual and very verbal. And he felt that was helpful. Uh, you know, I, I got him to focus on things that he was avoiding and was capable of doing but resisting or procrastinating. So that was sort of very practical. But the thing that most made a difference to him was doing past life hypnosis, which he said opened him up for a period of three days and he just flowed creatively like he'd never flowed before. And that doesn't involve any psychedelic. And mm-hmm. it's uh, fairly short. And I like that a lot. And I would prefer to do that more than anything. Um, but it's a hard sell because people don't really know what it is. And it takes a commitment on a person's part to go there, you know, to relax and to trance and to trust somebody with your free-flowing narrative, which is mm-hmm. sort of what psychedelics do. They kick you into it. They take away your, they take away the brakes, and you know you you hurtle downhill into your subconscious. Um, so I would, you know, as you've mentioned that we have other tools. In, in that metaphor, we don't have other tools to take off the brakes and hurdle you downhill into your subconscious. I think they're probably right. a really good tool for that if yeah. you're ready for that. 
Right. So again, but hopefully whoever is moving through this type of treatment at the time has been fully debriefed on what that hurdling (laughs) would uh, possibly look like and, you know, those expectations and, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Another thing that's probably useful is to get into it slowly and learn what you're going to do. Everybody says, oh, you know, are you going to do it or not do it? It's all like heroic doses. And then, you know, there's talk about microdosing, which I don't think is quite halfway. It's a tenth of the way. And yeah. I, I would suggest people should step into it. Yeah. Go ahead. Tell <laughs> yeah, me. exactly. Uh, well, just because, especially from the, from the pharmaceutical perspective, one of our mantras is start low and go slow. So that yep. you, you know, in order to find your, you know, happy therapeutic sweet spot and minimize any adverse reactions and side effects, right? So, right. Um, so in terms, and you're right, usually recreationally, whenever these substances are in play, there's not a lot of that approach of the start low, right. go slow. It's what I like about yeah. microdosing is that it does allow that and it allows yeah. the person to get used to what may or may not happen and then titrate up slowly and fine. Yeah. And, you know, this is, this happens with CBD, cannabis, you know, um, mm-hmm. psilocybin. And then also I, I do um, know people that on their own time and in their own personal space, they do also microdose with LSD. Mm-hmm. So yep. it's, yeah, yep. I think it can be helpful. Yeah, I think so. I think that may be the future, at least the most practical future. Uh, because although we don't have the public telling us what they want, except the recreational users who tell us what they want, um, <laughs> that does do a number of good things. It empowers people. It gives them some responsibility, which is essentially what you need if you're going to take off the brakes and hurdle downhill you have mm-hmm. to be responsible for steering your mind, which, you know, a lot of people don't really do at the conscious level because there's so much, so much of a template in how to think and behave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So the time flies when, when we're <laughs> talking about the big complicated questions. Uh, so yep. let, tell everyone about your, your book your writings, what are you working on now? What do you want to promote? Oh, well, that's a small question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so I've got, a, I've got six books out. Three are basically on learning. We haven't talked about it, but underneath all this, the topic of how to learn floats. So three books are on learning, and I won't even talk about them because it's – sort of lower level. You, you can find me by name on Amazon and places like that. So the other okay. three are on therapy and uh, two of them are on sleep. One of them is on called Becoming Lucid. That's the one I'm going to offer people free digital copies for. It's called Becoming Lucid. And it talks about different dream states and what you can expect in them, how can you can use them, start to use them. And the third one was on COVID-19 and how you might use hypnosis in an area which we could talk about another time called introception. No, what is it called? Yes, introception, which is becoming aware of your body's functions, of your body's internal functions. 
becoming more aware mm-hmm. of your body's internal functions, becoming more aware mm-hmm. of your pulse and your breath. And you know, we hear about some of this in meditation, but I want to go deeper, becoming aware of your liver and your pancreas and your gastrointestinal tract and your nasal passages, um, almost as if they could talk to you. Well, they can talk to you, uh, certainly with pain, but they can also direct you, and maybe they can even direct your decision-making. So interception is, uh, was sort of the uh, point of that book. So those are the six books that are out there. And now I decided at my age of 66 that it was time to write a book on enlightenment. So that one's being finished. And then there's a dream on, uh, not a dream on, there's a nice slip. There's a book on dream, um, dream therapy or therapeutic dreaming, which I've offered as a course but haven't put out as a book. So that's my um, current work. And, uh, you know, there are lots of other smaller things. But if uh, people are interested, here's the offer, you see. Mm -hmm. They could go to this website where they subscribe to my blog. I have a blog that comes out monthly and is free. And then I publish weekly for people who want to pay for it, the same Mm -hmm. content but four times faster. And if you sign up at the free level or the paid level, then I'll send you the link to this book called Becoming Lucid. And uh, I think the full title is Becoming Lucid, Self-Awareness in Waking and Dreaming Life. The address is my website, mindstrengthbalance.com. Without any spaces, mindstrengthbalance.com. Slash subscribe underscore msb subscribe underscore msb uh and you know if you don't remember the page for the underscore msb there are links on the website at mindstrengthbalance.com to find it and that book is interesting because it has nine chapters each talk about entering and understanding a different state of trance and it has nine audio self-hypnotic tapes that you can access online and you're encouraged to download and listen to before you go to sleep as, as a learning tool to get back to learning. Mm-hmm. This is all about, I think it's fair to say, unless you're entirely pharmaceutical, it's about learning. Uh, you might mm-hmm. even say chemical learning if you want to. Um, in terms of rebalancing your body. So hypnosis comes in as a learning tool. You know, the the joke would be, you know, put it under your pillow and you wake up enlightened. But um, the truth is, you know, listen to it in the trance state where you might not even remember what you've heard and it's had an effect. Because like Mm -hmm. dreams, we dream for hours and if we're lucky we remember a minute, but they've had their effect. So Mm -hmm. why not try to work with it? Anyway, let's let's leave it there. Yeah, I would really encourage any of you out there that are even in the tiniest bit curious to definitely explore this. I can also say personally, at the beginning of pharmacy school, when I was really struggling, I actually did use hypnosis to help me 
not only sleep when I was struggling with insomnia from all the stress of a rigorous program, but also to retain and absorb all the information that my brain was being challenged to to learn at the time. So there's definitely something there. And so I encourage all of you to check it out, explore it, see, you know, what you can get out of it and um, how it can benefit your life. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. And, um, yeah, I would love to have you back on later to, to discuss the introspection that we didn't get to today. That'd be great. Thanks very much, yeah. Laura. That'd be great. You're, you're, yeah, so welcome. All right, everyone. Well, as always, you can find me at drlaramay.com, D-R-L-A-R-A-M-A-Y.com. And I'm on social media everywhere as well at D-R-L-A-R-A-M-A-Y. And we will catch you in two weeks, same time, 11 a.m., first and third Thursday of every month. Bye, everybody. Hear all of our previously aired broadcasts of News for the Soul online at News for the Soul. Now let's get back to the show. You're listening to News for the Soul, life-changing talk radio from the uplifting to the unexplained since January 1997. We began our 25th year in broadcasting in January 2022 and we're just getting started exploring the edge of human consciousness and possibility on planet Earth with founder and journalist Nicole Marie Whitney at the helm. What's really real and what's really possible? That is what we want to know. Join us at newsforthesoul.com. Newsforthesoul.com.